praise the Lord that it's good to be in his house. And we're going to go ahead and jump right into the message here this morning. We spent the last two weeks giving an introduction to the history of the book of Philippians. And as we looked at the word of God and as we look at historical sources, we saw how in Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul went into Philippi and began to preach the gospel. And as he preached the gospel, the Lord blessed with responses. And three different salvations are recorded there in the book of Acts chapter 16 in the town of Philippi, along with the family members of some of the people who got saved. And as Paul left, he did not leave this church behind to be on their own. He did not begin to preach the gospel and then leave and never deal with those people again. Even though he didn't have the internet and cell phones and email and ways that we would have to stay in constant communication, he went back to visit them. At different times, he sent Timothy to go and to preach to that church and to see how they were doing. And as we'll see in verse number one of the book, he ordained pastors and deacons to serve that church and to allow the new converts to be discipled and be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and to grow in the Christian faith. So then a church was established. And a decade later, as the Apostle Paul sat in prison, Wondering how these people were doing, the Holy Spirit of God gave him several different books of the Bible that were written from his jail cell when he was in Rome under house arrest. And here in prison, the Holy Spirit of God gives him the words to say under inspiration of the Spirit to write to this church and address a church that has now been established for a decade and has a wonderful testimony of going forward for the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes from prison, but his letter does not come across as broken. It doesn't come across as discouraged or even troubled. Rather, the themes are that of joy, strength, and confidence. As we'll look at the title this morning, Confidence in Christ. From Philippians 1.6, Confidence in Christ. Bill Parcells was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys about a decade ago. And he took a team that barely won any games the year before. And they said, how are you going to get your players to have confidence And he said, confidence comes from demonstrated ability. In other words, we've got to teach them how to do better. And after we win some, then they'll start to have some confidence. When you demonstrate the ability to do something, it breeds confidence that you can do it again. But Paul's confidence and our confidence this morning does not come from our demonstrated ability, but from God's ability. His promised ability, that ability that He has demonstrated on our behalf over and over again. If we realize the strength, the power, the sovereignty, and the might of the Christ we serve, it will not lead us to doubt whether He's in control now. It will not lead us to doubt whether or not He will be sufficient to carry us through. But rather we can look at God's ability that He has demonstrated on our behalf over and over again and say, Lord, I have confidence in you. Paul could write to this church with deep, unshakable confidence, not because of himself, not because of them, but because of Christ. Before we get into our main text, I wanted to give a few verses from 2 Corinthians as he was writing to them and dealing with how he had dealt with and ministered unto them and how he presented the promises of God to them. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 15, and this confidence I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and and nay, nay? It's a little bit funny the way in the Old English it comes across. But what Paul is beginning to say is he says, remember when I, when I dealt with you, when I taught you the things of God, was I teaching you, yeah, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's no. Sometimes we can count on God and his word and his promises, but sometimes it's in doubt. He goes on to say, but as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among us by you, even by me and Silvanius and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him 
was yay. You see what he's saying? It's yes. When God declares it, it is not in doubt. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. The promises of God are all certain. They are all yes. If he has said that he will do it, he will do it, and it is not in doubt. What is our faith this morning? It's that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And we celebrate it not just on Easter Sunday morning, but every Lord's Day morning we gather as a church with the confidence of saying this in the New Testament is the Lord's Day because He's not still in the grave. He's alive. He rose again. And He's here with us this morning where two or three are gathered together in My name. There am I in the midst of them. Christ has promised. Christ has conquered and He will conquer. He is able to provide our needs. He keeps our heart beating until our time comes to die. He builds His church. He saves the souls. He keeps the souls saved. His promises are not questionable or in doubt. Has He spoken it? It shall come to pass, the Scriptures say. I can look at you this morning and say with all confidence, I believe 100% that when my heart beats for the last time, when I die, when I leave this earth, I'm going to heaven to live there for all of eternity. And I'm going to have a new body that's like unto the body of Jesus Christ that will never have any sin nature or failure or desire for sin ever again. Is that an arrogant statement that I would claim that? No, it is not, because it is based 100% wholly on the promises of God who cannot lie. He cannot lie or lose, and though we are unworthy, worthy is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. This leads us to say, as Paul said, we can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So then let's begin to walk through this epistle verse by verse. A decade after Paul came into Philippi and left like a hurricane that blew through town and left with a whole lot of action in between, he sits in prison under house arrest in Rome waiting to see whether he will be put to death for his faith or let out again and the Holy Spirit of God gives him these words. Again, I'll make one more appeal to say that we believe these are not just the words of the Apostle Paul. We don't believe that some of what he said was of God and some of it was not. We believe that as we studied First and Second Thessalonians, he said over and over again, by the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, if any man among you obey not the words of these epistles, then separate from him, avoid him, that he may be ashamed. Why? Because they are the words of God. Here's what we see in the first few verses of chapter 1 that we'll cover this morning. Number 1, affectionate thanks. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. Now, Paul could have introduced himself in a lot of different ways, and sometimes he did. Sometimes he reminded the church at Corinth, I am an apostle, not for his own glory, but he had to remind them what I told you I got from God. God ordained me to give you these truths. I am an apostle, and what I've given you is from God. He could have introduced himself as a missionary, as author of many works of the New Testament. But here, rather than claiming any specific lofty title, he simply simply says, Timothy and I are servants of Jesus Christ. We serve Him, and in Christian love, we serve each other. Then he addresses the letter to the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. In the New Testament, the word saint is always used simply to refer to those who have been born again, to those who are a part of the body of Christ. And we see that in the Bible, it's not like some churches or denominations teach where sainthood is something that is given to them by the church or is achieved at a later date. And if you are good enough to be called a saint, then people will pray to you and give you all types of specific honor. But rather in the New Testament, they're saints and sinners. And the saints are simply sinners who have been saved and born again. 
So these truths that Paul gives in this epistle and in the rest of his writings, and yea, and all in the Word of God, it's not primarily written to those who don't know God, but it's written to the church. Now you could read Philippians and Romans in different books and learn how to be saved, but what was given specifically was to the church so that the church could be edified and equipped to know what God expected of them and how they were supposed to live so in turn they could evangelize the rest of the world, point them to the word of God that says how they can be saved. And he addresses the letter to the bishops and the deacons. In our church organization and beliefs, we believe there are two offices of the local New Testament church. One is that of bishop. That word is sometimes translated in the Bible, overseer. That's what that word means. At other times, the men who hold that specific office are referred to as elders or pastors. So then we believe that it's different titles describing different aspects of the same office. But that office, you could call it pastor, bishop, overseer, or elder, because that's what it was called in the Bible. But the church at Philippi not only had pastors, they also had deacons. And God said the pastors of the church were tasked with the oversight, with the leadership, with feeding the flock, with following God, and then trying to lead in that congregation. Not to have control over the individuals who attend. Not to tell them what they are supposed to do with their life or with their home outside of the church or to try to take the place of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but rather within the church that the pastors would be tasked with the duty of staying on the right track, of preaching the truth, of chasing away the wolves, of leading the church and overseeing it in the direction that God would have it to go. And in the book of Acts, we saw that the apostles, those who at that time were helping to oversee the Christians in Jerusalem, that the church, after experiencing rapid growth, when on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people in Jerusalem were saved, baptized, and added to the church on the same day, they looked and said that the apostles were getting criticized and saying, you're overlooking the care of the widows. You're overlooking the fatherless. There's some practical things that need to be done that you're failing to do. So then keeping up with church growth and growing pains and duties and and the need for some grace on both sides from the congregation to the leadership has always been there ever since the book of Acts. And there is no perfect church because there are no perfect people. There are no perfect pastors. We're all sinners just trying to follow the Bible the best that we can. And I think that perhaps we could try to follow the Bible as God leads us to do and not spend all of our time saying why everybody else is wrong and we're the only ones that are right. Because I think that in some specifics, God can lead different local bodies of Christ, different congregations to structure some of their leadership and their services and their church polity and other things in ways that fit that local congregation. And another one can be an independent, autonomous congregation and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit for that church. And perhaps God can be pleased with both of them. But in the book of Acts chapter 6, they then said we should go and find some servants, some men who have many of the same qualifications as the pastors and allow them to serve as servants that would go and help with the daily tasks and needs, such as servicing the widows and the fatherless and these, these uh, tangible daily workload things that need to be done so that the apostles could continue to give themselves to the word of God and prayer and not neglect that aspect of their calling by waiting of tables. So then this was a local church. It had New Testament leadership. It was written to the saints who were saved. And it was written from Paul and Timothy who simply claimed the mantle servants of Jesus Christ, servants of that congregation, not their lords or their masters. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives this opening in, if not everyone, then in nearly every single one of his letters, he says grace and peace, grace and peace, and in that order. If you will receive of the grace of God and receive his salvation, then you can be a partaker of his peace. You see, the world today cries out for peace and has a symbol for peace. And at Christmas time, there'll be songs on the radio saying, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
But the peace on earth proclamation given by the angels was connected to the fact that Jesus was come as the Messiah to be the Lord and Savior of all those who would turn to Him. And Jesus is the hope for peace. Not by earning His love through our good works, but through receiving His grace, becoming a child of God, we can receive of His peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Here the translators put in the margin, every remembrance of you or every mention of you. So whenever the church at Philippi was brought up, whenever he remembered them, whenever he was having his prayer time and he looked back in his mind at that time and those multiple times where he had visited that city and that local congregation, his response was to say, God, thank you for those people. Thank you for their love toward me. Thank you that they were open and ready to receive the gospel. Thank you for the partnership and the fellowship that they have given me throughout all these years. And what a blessing it is for a group of people to be following the Lord and living for the Lord and to have a good testimony. Paul did not think about that church and begin to weep by thinking about those who had turned them aside from the truth. He did not think about them and shake his head over all the trouble that they had allowed the devil to bring by being disobedient to the Word of God. They were not a perfect church, as we'll see in our studies. He had to name two ladies by name and say, Speak to those ladies and tell them that they be of the same mind in the Lord. He writes about unity and he tells them to lay down their rights and their pride and look to the needs of others. And he says, if it, just in case any of you were to chafe at that message or think you're too good to humble yourself and serve others. He says in chapter 2 of Philippians, but remember Jesus Christ, have the same mind that he had who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What am I saying? I'm saying that he had to point out some things that they needed to work on. They were not perfect, but they did have a good testimony. And when Paul remembered them or when they were mentioned, he said, I'd like to thank you, God, for them. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. Paul prayed for this church. He wrote them this epistle. He sent them Timothy. He ordained pastors and deacons to care for the church. But he also prayed for them. And Paul said, when I get on my knees here in this jail cell, and I pray that God would continue accomplishing his work in you, he says, I'm able to make that request with what? With joy with joy in my heart because of where you were and how far you've come and because of my confidence in Christ as to where you will be going in the future. Remember joy. That word's going to come up over and over again in these 104 verses. It's the theme of our series, always rejoicing. And here he makes his first appeal to joy by saying that their testimony was so good that every time he remembered them, he gave thanks to the Lord. And when he prayed, he was able to pray for them with joy to be glad about what God had accomplished in them. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about obeying them spiritually who have the rule over you. And then it says that they may do it with joy and not with sorrow. For that would not be profitable for you if you were causing sorrow to the people who were over you in the Lord serving you. And that's what they accomplished here in this church. He says, always in every prayer of mine. He never forgot them. He says, for you all, which denotes a care for the individuals and the people who were at that church. He truly cared for them with the love of Christ. This was a special relationship that caused Paul to express affectionate thanks. And isn't it a blessing this morning to know that there is nothing like Christian brotherhood, sisterhood, fellowship, in the Lord, that we live in a world that points to divisions and what divides us politically and racially and geographically. But Paul said in his preaching that the Lord Jesus Christ has made of one blood and one flesh all the nations of the earth. But to be around other people who know the Lord, who show evidence of the Holy Spirit indwelling them in their home, who show good fruits. And to just talk about the things of God. 
We had about, what is it, four of us there at the breakfast this Thursday morning and we read scripture till 8.30 and then for the next hour we just sat there talking, discussing topics about the things of the Lord. And I'd be willing to go into a situation, I pray the Lord gives all of us opportunity to go into a situation like that and talk about truth and Bible doctrines with people who don't know God. That's a good thing because that allows us to call them to Christ. But to sit there and do that with people whom I can look at and say, I know from the words they speak and the actions by which they live, they know God. And the joy and rejoicing and the fellowship and the strengthening that we can share with other Christians that we may be in another country or states far away and not know anyone. But if we run into someone else who we can tell is a Christian and begin to talk about things of the Lord, we have so much commonality instantly within the family of God. Within the body of Christ, I believe it's one of the reasons why God gave us the local church. And He said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Because you can sit at home and watch really good preachers. But if he's off in California or New York or pastor of a mega church in Dallas, when you're in the hospital, he probably won't be able to come visit you. If you have a family member who needs to know the Lord and you want someone to pray with you and help witness to them, the... TV preacher probably can't do that. And you might think, well, I can get fed at home and I could be okay if I never have any interaction with other Christians. I don't believe that's true. You'll begin to suffer in ways. But so too the other people who God would have you to be a blessing to will be robbed of that blessing if we withdraw from contact, community, and fellowship with other believers. Paul said, I'm thankful for you. And they had good memories to look back to. Camaraderie is forged in the fire. Oftentimes the deepest bonds, that of camaraderie and of communion and fellowship and good memories, are forged through circumstances that were less than ideal. You take a group of soldiers who were in a foreign fight together 20 and 30 years ago and they have a reunion. They're able to tell their war stories and be able to look back at what they went through and share a bond that they don't share with strangers because they had a past and they had a history and things that they were brought through to be able to share in. And Paul in this church had a lot of stories that they could remember. Remember Paul when you came in and preached and and you found Lydia, the seller of purple, down by the river and she got saved? And then that girl who was possessed of the demon that all the time was troubling her, and then she came out of her when you commanded her to, in the name of Christ, the demon was cast out. Remember the Philippian jailer who was about to kill himself, but you said, do thyself no harm, we are all here. And when he said, what must I do to be saved, you shared with him the gospel. And perhaps he became one of the deacons or the pastors in that church. And when they met strangers, they were able to look back and say, Christ has changed my life. He's changed this city because of the message of the gospel. And I believe that being a family is not just about being related to one another or living in the same place, but it's about doing life together, the good and the bad, and tying heartstrings toward one another. I heard recently of a survey that was given of people who were in their 90s, and they were asking them about their life, and they were asking them, what was the happiest years of your life? What are your regrets? What would you do differently? And no one responded, I wish I'd spent more hours in the office. Or I wish that I had been more famous. But rather, time after time, the people who answered responded that the happiest times of their life and the most meaningful things had something to do with other people and love that was shared. And so too, people will point back to when they were raising children as some of the happiest years of their life. Even though practically... It's some of the most chaotic, stressful, scary, um, terrifying, exhausting times of your life. Why? Because in the moment, it's very hard. But the children that God has given you, you're trying to raise them upright 
for the Lord. And you look back at those times, and even though they were crazy and they were messy and they were far from perfect, you're able to look back at the good memories and say, we were doing something together. We were going in the same direction. We were building up what it meant to be a family. And so too, in the work of the church, I believe what you see from the heart of Paul to this congregation at Philippi was coming from a standpoint of people who had been through spiritual battle together. And though it may not have been easy for Paul to sing praises at midnight as his back was aching from the pains of the lashes he had received and as he was thrown on the cold stone floor with his hands in the stalks, yet he could look back at what God accomplished through those trials and say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for those people. Thank you for what we went through together. And I believe this morning as we're trying to be a family and go forward for the Lord and ask Him to bless His church, I believe that we are making memories. And that someday in this life, maybe some of you who moved away will catch up again and will look back and say, remember what the Lord did for our little church as we were launching forward by faith? Hopefully in heaven one day we will find each other and rejoice in the fruit that God brought about from a small group of people who said, Lord, we want to be your servants. We want to give the gospel. And growth of any kind comes at a cost. It's work. It's labor. It's the rules that God has established in a fallen world that if you want to reap the harvest and enjoy the fruit, you have to plant the seed. You have to water the seed. You have to work to harvest the seed. But what is done for the Lord is worth it. And it will not bring about regret. We will not look back on our life one day and say, I wish I had done less for the Lord. But even if we were in His will to the best of our broken ability, surely all of us in one way or another will look back and say, I wish I'd given Him more. I wish I could have found more ways to love Christ for all He's done for me. And the good news is He's not looking at what you do and all of your works and saying you need to achieve a certain level of goodness in order for me to love you. But the message of the gospel, the message of the whole Bible, is every person that has ever lived in this broken world is a sinner. But because of the grace and love of Jesus Christ, He accepts us, not because of our goodness, but because of His goodness, because of His grace, because of His mercy, and because of the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A pastor in Connecticut was recently telling that a decade ago he went to a church that had all kinds of problems and was desperate for God to bring about a work of renewal there and how the when it rained his first week there that they got trash cans and put them out all over the auditorium so that it could catch the water that was falling from the ceiling in a big auditorium without a lot of people there and he was in the office trying to work and an older lady was coming up to try and see him and as she left the glass door fell off of the hinges and on top of her... And he said, Lord, we've got work to do. And he said they were trying, they were, they were in some type of a building program or deadlines that were coming up, but people had started coming and the Lord had started blessing the church. And, and he came out and he said, I was all frustrated and, and behind. And he said there was a man who had been at the church for a long time when it went through a lot of really hard times. And he said, I looked at him and I said, oh, I'm just so far behind. And the guy laughed. And he said, why are you laughing? I'm stressed out. He said, Pastor, I'm just glad we have something to be behind in. I'm glad we have some work to do. I'm glad that what we're trying to do is not something that's worthless and meaningless in eternity, but that it counts for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a blessing to have work to do. It's a blessing to have challenges to try and overcome. In all aspects of life, that gives us meaning. But especially in the work of the Lord, in giving the gospel, and in making disciples, and in following Christ, if He gives us obstacles to overcome, let's try to do it together and support one another. And when Paul looked back at this congregation and all they had been through, he said, I thank God for you. Every time I pray for you, I'm able to do it with joy. And in this church, it's where I heard the gospel as a young child. It's where I first believed that the Lord was calling me to preach. It's where I was baptized and where, oh my goodness, 22 years ago now, I stood right here and preached my first attempt at preaching a sermon that wasn't very good. 
But this Thursday morning when we were at the breakfast, I looked over at a table and I saw a couple of the Lang kids, the family that used to come here 20 plus years ago. And when I went to the, their mother's funeral who died from COVID a couple of years ago, one of the ladies who was an adult said, boy, I remember going to that church. I remember hearing about Jesus and I can't remember the exact words she said, but I remember as a little kid, your dad preaching in the pulpit and it was like larger than life. It was like you were going to see the president. Or, or somebody that you were like, like whoa, the, the presence that he preached with. But I remember just thinking then, because I think I'd been pastor here for about five months. This is 20 years ago. But because of ministry, because of the gospel, because of the truth, now there's an adult who could look back and say, I heard about Jesus there. I heard the gospel there. And it's a precious opportunity to try and serve the Lord together. What was their fellowship for? It was not just a social club. It was not just to keep them busy. But Paul said, your fellowship, what did he give thanks for with joy? In verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. It was a fellowship. The word for fellowship means partnership, participation. And sometimes in the New Testament, it's used for the word benefaction or giving. So he's saying, you partnered with me. You, you had a part in what I was doing. And we find from the pages of Philippians that when Paul was off in Thessalonica preaching the gospel, he was laboring at night as a tent maker, wanting to allow the church to be established and disciple the new congregation before he taught them about giving and receiving and how they should give to support him to preach the gospel. And they sent a man named Ephroditus with an offering that they all gave sacrificially from their own pocket. And he said, even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again to my need. They came to him with their hard-earned money that they pulled. And they said, Paul, we just want you to know this comes from the Christians at Philippi and we want to support you in your work of the gospel. Thank you for serving the Lord. So then their love, their fellowship, their prayers, their encouragement, and the money that they gave was all for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, from the first day until now. What a blessing. What a blessing. Fellowship and partnership for the sake of the gospel is vital. It's vital. I believe it's important that Christians within a local church and then outside the walls of that local church for the sake of missions around the world that we need to be on the same page. We need to be the same doctrinally because the scripture says can two walk together except they be agreed. But it's also important that we don't let our pride get in the way and get hung up on things that we might disagree with one another about but that compared to the gospel probably shouldn't be a big enough deal to keep us from working together to see souls saved because eternity is coming fast. We must work the works while we have time, while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. And some missionaries have been put through absurd lengths of questionnaires that are hundreds of questions long that have nothing to do really with the work of missions on the field, but have prevented people from working together for the sake of the gospel. And I'm just saying, however you want to look at it, the truth, yes, of course, I'm not saying that it's not important, but you shouldn't let one or two things you disagree with a church over keep you from humbling yourself and being a part of that local congregation if that's where the Lord is leading you. Okay. Let me see. I am trying to see what I can skip over to quickly move. Let me just say this. Paul, in his letters, did not use flattery but he always did give praise. He was praising this congregation for what they had done. He didn't use the strategy of flattery, saying nice things insincerely to try to get people to like him, but he was not afraid to look at them and say, you've been doing a good job. I'm proud of you. I want you to know that. This is from Barnes Notes. Uh, listen to this, if you would. It applies in many different ways, but I believe we're taking it from the example of Paul praising this church. Constant fault-finding, scolding, or fretfulness does no good in a family, a school, or a church. The tendency is to dishearten, irritate, and discourage. To commend a child when he does well may be as important and as much a duty 
as to rebuke him when he does ill. God is as careful to commend his people when they do well as he is to rebuke them when they do wrong. And that parent, teacher, or pastor has much mistaken the path of wisdom who supposes it to be his duty always to find fault. I love the heart of what he's saying there. He says a parent, a teacher, or a pastor, or a spiritual leader in any context, if all we do is create a militaristic environment where the child will receive discipline, where the church will hear about their sins, but we don't balance that out with the love, praise, and encouragement that God Himself gives to us, it's going to create an imbalance in that atmosphere. Yes, the child needs to learn discipline, but they also need to receive love and acceptance and joy. So then when we correct, we should also exhort. When we punish, we should also praise and not allow the congregation, the children, whatever the case may be, to be beaten down by the constant path of negativity. And throughout the years, I've heard different people talk about, well, what we need is hard preaching, and we just need really, really hard preaching, and let her rip. And and I think God uses all kinds of different people and styles and strategy. And I think someone could speak a lot quieter than me and, and be very reserved, but they could be preaching the truth. And someone could yell a little bit more than I do and stomp a little bit more than I do. And they could still be telling the truth. But I believe the point is not to leave everybody when they leave hearing the Word of God feel like they've been beaten over the head, but feel like they've been fed. Like, yes, the negatives have been pointed out. The corrections have been made. But from a standpoint of hopefulness and of praise and of the love of God. And God said, feed the sheep not flog the sheep. And I believe that's what he would have us to do. Number one, he gave affectionate thanks. Number two, he expressed absolute confidence. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He, referenced in this verse, is not the Apostle Paul. It's Christ himself. And he said, he's saying, I don't know how this is going to shake out. I don't know if I'm going to get out of jail. He's already said, I'm ready to die if that's what God wants me to do. But I am confident of this, that the same God who began this work in you when you were saved will continuously perform it from now until the day of eternity. We may say, well, can I do it? Can I live for the Lord? Can I make it? Who began it? It was Christ. And I believe that on the day that we see Christ, we can hear, well done. We can be approved of God. Not I, but through Christ in me. Because He begins, He performs, and then He completes. I believe Paul is referencing here what we could call perseverance of the saints or eternal security. He was looking to people who he was confident had been born again. And he said, I don't have any worry as to whether or not the Holy Spirit of God who came in to indwell you when you were saved is going to leave you. I don't have any doubts that the God who said, if you call upon my name, you shall be saved, is going to change his mind. But I believe what I've seen in you is evidence of a work that was begun by God. And that gives me confidence that God Himself will continue that work until we get to heaven. Pastor Jay used to always tell us the significance of this verse in his life and how he was led to the Lord by a lady who sometimes attended Catholic church without, as far as I know, a connection to a real Bible-preaching church. But her son was friends with my dad. And she knew what John chapter 3 and Romans and the Bible said about the gospel. So she called her friends and they all prayed throughout the afternoon because she said, I'm going to try to witness to him and give him the gospel. And that lady used of the Lord to show him that Jesus said, Ye must be born again. Led my father to Christ. Changed the course of his life. And in large part, I'm standing here this morning because of what that lady was used of the Lord to do. And she's in hospice care this week. And my dad was able to talk to her on the phone and to her son this week. And he used to tell us all the time in his preaching that he got saved and he he was praying to the Lord one morning and he said, I don't know if I have the confidence to live 
the Christian life for you. And then that very night or that very week, while they, the people who led him to the Lord were studying the Bible with him, they were reading through Philippians chapter 1, and God said, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is a reference to all of eternity. Sometimes in the Bible it's called the day of the Lord. Often the aspect of God's wrath is focused on. It's referring to what begins with, we believe, the rapture, the tribulation period, the millennial reign, all the way up till the destruction of this current earth when it shall be burned up and God will make a new heaven and a new earth. He calls that entire time period the day of the Lord or the day of Christ, or the day of God. And it has two aspects. Upon the world who does not know God, the wrath of God will be poured out. They will face judgment. But for the Christians, it's a message of hope, of deliverance, of a new glorified body, of a rapture where the, the living and the dead will meet the Lord in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and be given a new body and a new nature. And Paul references in every single chapter the coming of Christ, even in Philippians. He doesn't go into as much depth about the topic as he did in Thessalonians. But in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he talks about the day of Christ multiple times. And in chapter 3, he talks about looking for Jesus to come from heaven. And in chapter 4, he says, the Lord is at hand. And the more I read Paul's writings, the more I see that he was telling them to expect that Jesus is coming again and to be prepared. So he says, that which God has begun in you. And stick with me if you can. I'm going to try to, to blow through the end of this and we'll be done here on time this morning if God will help me. He says, I'm confident that what God began in you, He will continuously perform and allow you to do until the day of Christ when we're all up in heaven receiving our new glorified body. The term therefore will perform it means we'll perform it, we'll do it, we'll accomplish it, or we'll finish it to completion. And Christ is faithful. I'm glad He loves us, even though we are not always faithful. Even though we let Him down, He always loves us. And He's faithful. He was faithful to Paul, to the Philippians, and to us as well. Our God abandons nothing He undertakes. If God gives His word... He keeps His Word. And on the day of Christ, we can look back at our life not being sinless, but being whole, mature, complete, our race being run, and our course being finished. Number three, He continues to express His desire that they would be approved on the day of Christ. Even as it is meet or appropriate for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Again, here the translators placed in the margin, or you have me in your heart. Evidently, the term was denoting either which way or all of it. Paul says, I have you in my heart. You have me in your heart. We share a special fellowship that God has given us. Inasmuch as both in my bonds, there I believe it is for the first time in this chapter where it will come up over and over again. The word for bonds means shackles or chains. He's sitting in prison. But he says, in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Partakers. It means you've shared it with me. We've shared in the glory. We've shared in the victory. We've shared in the suffering. And in the negativity, you've been with me. You've partnered with me in the gospel and helped me bear what I've been given to bear. Through prayer, through trials, encouragement, fellowship, and giving money to Him, they had become partakers with Him in the gospel through all that He had to go through. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ or the heart of Jesus Christ. The inward affection is what is being expressed here. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in all knowledge and judgment. The word here for judgment means perception or discernment. So he's saying, I pray that your love may abound more and more in what you know, but also in your judgment, in your right to perceive what is good and what is bad? That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense 
until the day of Jesus Christ. To approve here means to try or to test. He's saying that God may give you godly discernment to tell what is right and what is wrong and to approve the things that are excellent. The word there for excellent is sometimes used in the Bible just to to mean a difference or to differ between things. Twice it's translated differ from, but three times it's translated be better. Twice it's translated as more value. In other words, I think what he is saying here is I'm praying that God will give you wisdom to test and to try and to know what is good, what is better, what is excellent. Why? That you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. What are the fruits of righteousness? They're that which God wants to bring about through the lives of His people. It's souls saved. It's evidence that we know the Lord. It's the way we live. How do they come? By Jesus. What are the purpose of them? Not for the glory and praise of the church, but for the glory and praise of our God. The Bible tells us that as we live for Him, we can receive crowns for what we accomplished, what we went through in this life. But the book of Revelation tells us the crown are not, are not just for us to keep, but they cast them before the throne of God. And they say, thank you, Lord, for the fruits of righteousness which you produced in my life. And all of the glory goes to you. And in heaven, Job will be able to look back and see that the church heard his whole story and it gave them hope and it brought about fruit. It brought about glory to God Himself. The widow who gave two mites. Ephroditus who came to give the money to Paul and who became sick unto death and unable to travel home. What he went through in life not being able probably to see all of what happened. But in heaven... He, along with that church and along with Paul, will be able to look back and say the things that God took us through brought about eternal fruit. And it's all for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Let me close with this. In World War II, there was an Australian sailor whose name was Frank Jenner. The war had been a tough time for him. He saw the images and the pictures and the reports of the atomic bombs going off in Japan and the thousands of souls that were instantly vaporized as a cost to end the war. This man was a Christian and he allowed these images of the war to give him an urgency to share the gospel and to do the work of an evangelist. He was perfect by no means. He was addicting, addicted to gambling and had a hard time staying out of places where he would go and lose the money that was supposed to be used to care for his family. And he had persistent health problems throughout his whole life. Let me tell the story from the angle of someone else. During a time of testimonies at Lansdowne Baptist Church in England in the summer of 1952, Reverend Francis Dixon heard two very similar stories from two British sailors who had never met each other before. Both sailors, while on shore leave in Sydney, were approached by a man out on the street who looked at them and said, Young man, if you were to die tonight, where would you be? In heaven or in hell? In the course of time, they both returned home. But the encounter with this mysterious man on George Street left such a deep impression on their hearts and minds that they both sought spiritual help when back in England. Later, they both became Christians through the work of this man. Shortly after this, Francis Dixon departed with his wife Nancy for his first preaching tour to Australia and New Zealand. Deeply fascinated by the coincidence of the two stories of the sailors and recognizing that he was heading to the land where these events had happened, he resolved to investigate the matter further. Who was this unconventional street evangelist? Why had he chosen to act in such a way? And how many other people had been impacted by his ministry? It didn't take long to get some answers. The tour commenced... And while preaching in a large hall one night, the preacher named Francis Dixon related the stories of the two sailors from England, the people who got saved because they were approached by this man on the street. At this point, their host, who happened to be sitting next to Mrs. Dixon and to whom they had just been introduced, waved his arms around and jumped up and said, I'm another, I'm another. This man later told them that during the war, 
the evangelist had approached him while he was running to catch a tram and that he had given his life to Christ in an army barracks two weeks later. Young man, if you were to die tonight, where would you be, in heaven or in hell? Later, while traveling, the same preacher again shared the story. This time, a man, after the service was over, approached him to say that he, too, had become a Christian as a consequence of that single sentence that was uttered by the evangelist on George Street in Sydney, Australia. Once more, he had gone on to lead Christian Endeavor for Western Australia. And so the preacher reached Sydney, determined to meet the man behind these stories. He met a local Christian worker and began to share the stories that had popped up of this man who approached people on the street and in different countries and churches heard fruit of people who got saved. And the man he asked about it said, Yes, I know him well. His name is Frank Jenner. Like me, he works with the forces and he is a sailor himself. And he led him to go visit this man in a humble home where he lived with his wife. As the preacher recounted four different stories of people who said, I was just walking down the street and some crazy guy said, young man, if you were to die tonight, where would you be, in heaven or in hell? And he said, four different people told me that because you did that, they thought about it and God convicted their hearts and they later came to give their lives to Jesus Christ. Frank Jenner, with tears in his eyes, fell to his knees and prayed, Oh Lord, thank you for tolerating me. And after a time of prayer, he confessed that after speaking to 10 people a day for the last 16 years, this was the first time he had ever heard of a lasting result. He said, You know, I never heard that anyone I ever spoke to had gone on for the Lord. Some made professions of salvation when I spoke to them, but I never knew any more than that. He was so aware of his weakness. He shared with the preacher that every time before he went out to speak to people about Christ through his nervousness and and his worry about how it would go, he would close his eyes and he would pray to himself, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. We'll get there eventually. He went on to meet at least 10 people who got saved as a direct result of this man who simply said, I believe God wants me to do something for eternity. So I'm going to approach people on the street and ask them about their salvation. But what he said was, I never knew if there were any lasting results. Now, I believe if we serve the Lord, hopefully in this lifetime, we'll be able to look back and see results but we'll never know till we get to heaven itself what God accomplished eternally. Fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I know He's commanded us to serve Him. And I know that it's not in vain. And I know He'll bring about the fruit He intends to from our labors for His own glory. Let's bow for prayer. With no music or anything this morning, let's have a brief time of prayer. If you'd like to pray at the altar or in your seat, let's lift up our burdens to the Lord this morning. Let's give Him glory for our joys and our triumphs. Let's ask Him to use our simple acts of service for Him to bring about fruit that remains. And let's express confidence in Christ this morning that He will continue to take our efforts and bless And that the same God who began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ. Let's have a moment of prayer for just just one moment.